1: all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
2: Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Belarus bypass, airlines avoid the nation's airspace after EU sanctions. Musk's miners, the Tesla boss, joins a US alliance aiming to boost Bitcoin's sustainability. And onwards, Olympics, the IOC tells CNN cancellation is, quote, off the table. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Warm welcome once again to First Move, great to be with you as always as we talk sustainable Bitcoin mining, bond, James Bond buying and general inflation defying. I'm certainly trying. On Wall Street, there's no denying a buoyant start to the trading week with tech rising almost one and a half percent on Monday. As you can see, we're looking to add actually pre-market with the S&P 500 within touching distance of records once again. We're also making new records on the German DAX, fueled by a post-pandemic peak In business confidence, there and lower borrowing costs are helping too. I can give you a look. US 10 year yields are at two week lows. We've got Asia and European interest rates easing along with them too. Investors seem to be taking a wait and see approach on prices, with US Federal Reserve members yesterday reiterating that the current rise is transitory. I tell you what, though, there's nothing transitory about crypto's choppiness. Bitcoin may be a touch lower today, but it did bounce 20% yesterday on tweets from MicroStrategies CEO, Michael Saylor, saying that Elon Musk and the U.S. Bitcoin mining community are committed to cleaning up crypto, specifically Bitcoin. So we're talking a centralized approach To a decentralized technology. No irony there at all. And did someone called China remember as well? Because they carry out the bulk of the mining to get them on board too, I'm just saying. Now speaking of mining, steel prices are at two month lows, and iron ore also falling after Beijing's move to curb rising commodity prices, lower commodity prices are helping ease inflation fears across export rich Asia today. You can see it there. Look at that. China advancing almost two and a half percent. Okay, lots to discuss let's get to the drivers. The European Union cutting aviation links with Belarus and calling for the release of a dissident journalist arrested after authorities forced a commercial flight to land. On Monday, Roman Protasevich appeared on a pro-government social media video admitting he was responsible for organizing protests. His supporters say he looks to be under duress. NATO's Secretary-General, Jen Stoltenberg, called the diverting of the Ryanair flight a state hijacking.
3: The forced landing of a passenger flight by Belarus was dangerous and uh, unacceptable. This is a state hijacking and demonstrates how the regime in Minsk attacks basic democratic rights and cracks down on freedom of expression and uh, independent uh, media.
2: Matthew Chance joins us now. Matthew, an outraged response and actions, I think, from the international community, primarily the EU at this stage, but also questions being asked, and it goes to where you are, what role Russia played in this too?
4: Well, I mean, the Russians say they they played no role in it whatsoever. In fact, when the Kremlin have been asked about, you know, the the alleged role of any uh, players from here, they've simply sort of batted that suggestion away and referred it to the various aviation um, authorities. I mean, I I think the sort of broader role that that Russia plays is in the sense that it it provides an economic backstop to Belarus and to President Lukashenko, the the ruler of that country, who's been in power there for the past 27 years, you know, more or less with, with Moscow's Backing. And so even though there are sanctions against him and his regime right now, uh, along with the condemnation of the way the election was rigged last year, the presidential election, according to election uh, observers, the crackdown on the protesters, uh, the fact that this civilian airliner has been forced to land in Minsk and a dissident journalist taken off it, along with his girlfriend, uh, and imprisoned, um, you know, and the sanctions that, that have come from that already in terms of the banning of European flights across you know, the airspace of uh, of Belarus and the banning of Belarusian aircraft into European uh, airspace. And there's likely to be more sanctions as well, by the way. Those are still under discussion to target the individuals who are linked directly with this latest incident the truth is it 's not going to have a great deal of impact as long as Moscow continues to provide that economic back- backstop and we 've seen no sign whatsoever uh, at this stage that um, that Moscow is prepared to you know, kind of ease that backing of that uh, regime right next door
2: and uh, matthew we 're just showing uh, Charles and Michel the eu council president 's tweet from earlier just showing. Uh, the planes that are avoiding Belarusian airspace there, and you can see it clearly pointed out amid all sorts of yellow aircraft that are doing their best to uh, avoid the airspace as a result of what we've seen, and this, of course, tied to the sanctions. Matthew, you raise a great point, which is um, Russia is a facilitator, I think, of the ongoing leadership of President Lukashenko. Less than a year after, we saw huge protests about his ongoing leadership. I think for ordinary Belarusians today, they're, they're sort of waking up with the reality that he's ever harder to remove and he looks incredibly strong in light of what we've seen in the last few days bold perhaps
4: well i mean yeah perhaps yeah i mean look i mean i i I think you know obviously there'll be people inside belarus and perhaps it's a growing number that will look at this situation and go look look how isolated the country is becoming look what's happening to belarus under the leadership i suppose of alexander lukashenko the president as i say for the past 27 years but because of that point you know we just discussed the, the fact that he's he's backed up to the hilt by moscow there's very little that those dissident voices inside belarus can can actually do there's been an effort of course there's been mass protests across the country to to topple him but so far they they've been unsuccessful and uh, President Lukashenko has lose, used brutal police tactics to suppress dissent this latest forcing down of the Ryanair jet was another iteration of that use of brutal tactics to uh, bring those who are political opponents um, under his under his authority or, or, or put them in prison basically um, and so I think even though th- the stance of this particular uh, dissident journalist and activist, uh, may inspire some people. It may also lead to many other people in Belarus saying, "Look, you know, it's 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 perhaps not worth the sacrifice. We're not going to be able to change anything." So we'll see uh, how this pans out.
2: We shall, Matthew. Great to get the perspective, Matthew. Chance there for us. Okay, let's move on. Bitcoin came within touching distance of the forty thousand dollar mark overnight after Elon Musk says he met with American crypto miners about energy use. We've seen a little pullback since then. Claire Sebastian. Joins me now, big business, meet on policy and private, announce status of negotiations on Twitter. How very 2020, 2021. How are they going to clean up Bitcoin?
5: We don't know yet, Julia. All we know is, uh, according to to Elon Musk's tweet and one from Michael Saylor of MicroStrategy, who appears to be the brains behind this meeting, that they met with some of the CEOs of top mining companies, uh, some big names, including Galaxy Digital, run by Mike Novogratz. uh, And they agreed to form the Bitcoin Mining Council. Uh, The idea, the key idea appears to be to bring more transparency to the energy issue. Obviously, highly controversial. The reason why Elon Musk reversed course uh, a, a few weeks ago on the idea of using Bitcoin to to buy Tesla's. They want to bring more transparency, a standardized way uh, of reporting uh, miners' energy usage. So so that is the key issue here. We don't exactly know how how it will work, how people will be accountable. But very controversial within the Bitcoin community, Julia, which prides itself on being decentralized and having no sort of overarching authority. I want to read you a comment really interesting from from a key uh, member of the Bitcoin community. He writes an influential uh, newsletter and podcast called Marty Bent. He said, as Bitcoiners, we should be hyper vigilant about these types of attacks. Uh, that start off as what seems to be a benign virtue signal. He carries on, it can metastasize into a catastrophic cascading capture that renders Bitcoin useless when compared to the fiat currencies of today, because it is no different. So he is clearly very worried that this kind of effort to bring some kind of organization, perhaps even control, to to any part of the Bitcoin mechanism could lead to more regulation, Julia. Uh Aha!
2: And I made that point at the top of the show, centralization of something that was all meant to be decentralized, which is one point. But as we've discussed on the show, 65 percent approximately of the mining happens outside of um, outside of control of these guys like the United States in the West. It's about China. And if you can't get those guys to clean up, um, I'm not sure how this works. Um, But anyway. Is this mining a matter or an honest effort to make Bitcoin greener or just more Twitter twitching? You decide. Let's talk about some of the institutional players in this. Goldman Sachs, of course, yesterday saying Bitcoin is now an asset class on its own. HSBC begs to differ.
5: Yeah, HSBC coming out uh, in an interview with Reuters and saying that they're not into it uh, as an asset class, looking at the volatility. Uh, that, that They say that, you know, that, that raises very difficult questions about how to value it on a client's balance sheet because of that volatility. And on the other hand, of course, as you mentioned, we have Goldman Sachs saying it's not often we get to witness the emergence of a new asset class. Now, Goldman is in the majority here. We really are seeing sort of a drumbeat of more institutions sort of coming on board, even ones who in the past have expressed skepticism. Morgan Stanley have started offering it to, to, to their wealthiest clients, trading options, even on the payment side, we have the likes of MasterCard looking into incorporating it, PayPal and Venmo uh, already accept it. So, so there does seem to be more and more widespread adoption of it, even as the debate continues about what it's actually useful for, whether it's an asset class, whether it has some use uh, as a currency. So, so interesting that HSBC coming out sort of as an outlier here, Julia.
2: HSPC more aligned with China's thinking on this. Always be aware of where your HQ is based. I said it, not you. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that, at least for now. OK, let's move on to Japan, where officials see no change in US support for the Olympic Games. This despite the US State Department advising its citizens not to travel. Tokyo says they are doing enough to ensure safety, as Selena Wang explains.
1: The U.S. State Department is warning Americans to avoid travel to Japan because of a surge in COVID-19 cases in the country. It's issued a level four do not travel advisory, the highest cautionary level. The CDC says that even fully vaccinated travelers risk getting and spreading COVID-19 variants in Japan. The U.S. Olympic Committee says it's confident that its athletes can still safely compete. Japanese officials are downplaying this advisory, saying it does not impact U.S. support for the Tokyo Games. But the contrast between what Olympic officials are saying and the reality here on the ground is only growing. Tokyo and large parts of Japan are still under a state of emergency. Only 2% of the Japanese population is fully vaccinated and the medical system is under strain. In Osaka, doctors are warning of a medical system collapse, with hospitals running out of bed space and ventilators. At the same time, Olympic organizers are only portraying complete and absolute confidence that these games will go ahead safely. I recently spoke with the longest-serving member of the International Olympic Committee, Dick Pound, who said he's already bought his ticket to come to Japan for the Olympic Games. Take a listen to what he told me here. Is a cancellation still a possibility?
6: None of the folks uh, involved in in the planning and the execution of the, the games is considering uh, cancellation. That's that's essentially <clears throat> off the table.
1: So, how can the IOC guarantee that this is going to be a completely safe bubble?
6: Well, nobody can guarantee anything. I mean, let's that's, let's that's, that's be reasonable on that. But but all of the indications, the fact based indications, are that the bubble can be created and maintained.
1: But much of the medical community here in Japan disagrees with that optimism, saying that it is impossible to have a safe bubble with the scale of the Olympics and that these games need to be canceled in order to save lives. Salida Wang, CNN, Tokyo.
2: Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The U.S. Secretary of State has pledged support to rebuild Gaza after days of fighting between Israel and Hamas. Earlier, Antony Blinken met with the Israeli Prime Minister for talks on strengthening a ceasefire. He said both sides of the conflict have lost so much.
4: Losses on both sides uh, were profound. Casualties are often reduced uh, to numbers, but behind every number, is an individual human being, a daughter, a son, a father, a mother, a grandparent, a best friend. Uh, And as the Talmud teaches, uh, to lose a life is to lose the whole world, whether that
0: life is Palestinian or Israeli.
2: CNN's Nick Robertson is live in the West Bank, where Blinken is also set to meet with the Palestinian Authority, too. Nick, I think the help rebuilding Gaza perhaps addresses some of the criticism back in the United States from his own party, the Democrats. But who is most influential in the region in order to perhaps suppress and contain Hamas going forward, too, in order to maintain this ceasefire?
6: Yeah, that point's a big topic of conversation, one that uh, Blinken had with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and other Israeli officials, the foreign minister as well, uh, uh, Gabi Ashkenazi, uh, this morning. That was a big concern, is a big concern for the Israelis, big concern for the United States as well. What Blinken has also said is that he will rally international support for helping to rebuild uh, Gaza. And also this morning, when he was there in Jerusalem, spoke about he will announce later this afternoon a significant, significant U.S. Contribution for helping in that rebuilding so I think we can look forward to perhaps hearing uh, potentially some figures uh, from the United States about how much they're going to help but the message uh, that he will be putting to the Palestinian Authority uh, uh, president here and the Prime Minister will be that he wants them to try to help shepherd that money safely into the hands and the rebuilding of houses of Palestinians in Gaza no easy job because the Palestinian Authority officials he meet here don't have the power in Gaza uh, in the same way that Hamas does. Uh, but the, what the Palestinian Authority leaders here are going to be looking for from Secretary Blinken is a serious re from the United States, remembering they disconnected conversations with the Trump White House over the Trump White House's uh, decision to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And they really want the United States to focus down the road, put a horizon, start to build politically towards the diplomacy of a two-state solution. That's not going to happen now, but they do want to hear some messaging along those lines from, uh, from the Secretary of State.
2: We watch for that. Nick, great to have you with us. Nick Robertson there. Thank you. U.S. President Joe Biden hosting George Floyd's family at the White House today. Floyd died at the hands of Minneapolis, Minnesota police one year ago. The killing captured on camera and shared broadly sparked worldwide protests against police brutality and efforts by U.S. lawmakers to overhaul policing in the United States. Okay, so to come on first move, the Seychelles sees a COVID-19 spike despite having one of the world's highest vaccination rates. We speak to the president and life in the fast lane. We also speak to the head of IMAX about the success of the latest Fast and Furious film. Plus, what the streaming wars and battle for content means for them. Stay with us. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks remain on track for a second day of gains after an across-the-board advance. On Monday, it was truly an everything rally with both tech and economic rebound plays all performing well. Widely held tech names like Alphabet, Facebook, Microsoft and Tesla all rose, as you can see, 2% plus square. A big winner, too, rallying more than 5% on reports that it will soon roll out checking and savings account services, a move that will put it in direct competition with established banks. And speaking of banks, the heads of the major U.S. financial institutions will be testifying on Capitol Hill tomorrow and on Thursday, their first appearance together in years. A wide range of topics to be addressed, including economic inequality, fair lending and don't forget the crypto space, too. Okay, to Seychelles now, and over 70% of the population has had at least one vaccine dose. That's one of the highest vaccination rates in the world. The rapid rollout allowed the holiday hotspot to reopen for tourists back in March. Unfortunately, since then, it's seen a spike in infections, even in vaccinated patients. So what's going on? Well, joining us now is Weval Ramakalavan. He's the president of Seychelles, and he joins us now. Mr. President, fantastic to have you on the show. Let's talk about your incredible process or progress in vaccinating your citizens. You move very quickly to secure doses. Talk to me about where you are now in terms of fully vaccinated people. What percent?
3: Well, thank you, thank you very much, uh, Julia. In terms of uh, fully vaccinated, as far as uh, as far as uh, the two doses are concerned, we are at sixty four percent. But as far as the first dose is concerned, we are, we are at 100% because we have vaccinated 70% of our population. So this is where we stand right now.
2: And you're using a combination of Sinopharm from China and the AstraZeneca dose or vaccine produced by the Serum Institute of India.
3: That's right. We, are, we started off with uh, Sinopharm for... Uh, For those between 18 and 60 and for the over 60s, we we administered AstraZeneca first. But uh, after we after we had vaccinated the over 60s, we also offered AstraZeneca to to everyone above 18. And uh, this combination has worked extremely well for us.
2: And then you opened up to tourism, as I mentioned in the introduction, clearly tourism an important part of your economy. It employs around a third of your workers, I believe, too. Talk to me about the reopening and, and how concerned we should be perhaps about seeing more COVID cases.
3: Well, the reopening was uh, on the 25th of March. And uh, since then, it's been, it's been a real success. The, the economy has uh, taken off once again we've had many visitors but of course not from europe which is usually our main market we've had secondary markets like russia um, israel and the uae these have been our main uh, this is where our main visitors have come from but uh, i must say things have things uh, were going extremely well until around uh, around the 8th of may we we saw a spike in the number of cases And uh, this, of course, posed, uh, well, got many people asking questions, even the WHO. But uh, I must say that uh, the numbers have gone down. And, uh, for example, I can tell you the curve is way down. And yesterday we only registered 58 new cases. So things have gone down. But what we also realized was that the majority of people who who were contracting the virus... Had not been vaccinated, and those who had been vaccinated were what uh, we call asymptomatic positives. So people were were tested positive, but uh, but they were <laughs> they they didn't have any symptoms. But something else that uh, that really that has really struck us, and in fact. Uh, it's uh, it's proved to us that the two vaccines have really been effective is up to now we haven't had a single death a single death of anyone who's had the two doses and uh, furthermore we had an old people's home where 86 uh, in um, uh, patients who had received only one dose of the astrazeneca were totally asymptomatic and they have all recovered. So the vaccine has really saved the Seychelles.
2: And you raise some very important points here, I think, Outside of what you're seeing in Seychelles versus those that are being vaccinated or not vaccinated around the world, is there any reason, and some have questioned the efficacy of the Chinese vaccine. Based on what you're seeing, is there any reason to assume that the assumed efficacy rate of the Chinese vaccine is significantly lower than other vaccines out there?
3: No. Julia? I took the AstraZeneca no sorry I took the Sinopharm in fact I I was the first person in the Seychelles to receive the Sinopharm and the first African leader to also receive the Sinopharm I would say it's just uh, vaccine politics it's the West versus China and and the usual politics the efficacy of the Sinopharm vaccine is perfect as I say it has saved the Seychelles. If the Sinopharm vaccine was not effective, then we would, of course, have had deaths. We would have had uh, more people being hospitalized uh, and, uh, and, and suffering. But this has not been the case. After I took the, the Sinopharm vaccine, I also did an antibody test after the second dose and two weeks later and my antibodies were very high. And up to now, I haven't contracted any virus. So I would say all vaccines are working. And furthermore, yes, we've, uh, we've found the, the South African variant, but our people are doing extremely well. And there's, uh, so I have no reason to doubt the efficacy of the Sinopharm vaccine and also the AstraZeneca vaccine.
2: Uh, President Ramkalawan. because you've been so positive about the the Chinese vaccine in particular, I will have to ask you, you did pay for those vaccine doses and there were no special privileges given by China in order for the Seychelles to get access to those vaccines.
3: Well, in fact, uh, it was not China that donated the vaccines to Seychelles. We got the vaccines from the UAE. This was part of the friendship the UAE donated uh, the first batch of vaccines and then later on offered us some, some more vaccines. And even the AstraZeneca, this was a gift from, uh, from India. And uh, now we are also using uh, Sputnik V. And, uh, and this is a gift from Russia. We've only had gifts so far. We haven't had to buy a single vaccine. So it's not uh, it's not, it's not what you're what you're no. thinking.
2: And, <laughs> just, uh, checking.
3: And, and <laughs> just checking. And
2: diplomacy diplomacy yeah, works, uh, sir.
7: Um, uh,
3: yes. Yes. In fact, uh, in fact, we've been very lucky because uh, Seychelles, So when I visited the the UAE in December. I talked about the vaccine because the UAE had already rolled out the Sinopharm vaccine. And that's when we got the vaccine. And this allowed us in early January to roll out our own program.
2: And it's good to hear. Let me just ask you about economic recovery and how your people are doing and also what the message is to tourists, those that perhaps have read About spiking cases, we discussed it earlier. You're saying they're coming down now. What precautions are in place for tourists that want to take a holiday, want to come to Seychelles? Are they going to be safe?
3: Well, I can uh, say to everyone, I can look at anyone in the eye and say, come to Seychelles. Seychelles is totally safe. And how do I prove that? Up to now, we haven't had one case, not even one case, of a tourist having to be hospitalized and uh, should they contract uh, the virus or as we know sometimes people come with the virus we have the facilities our health system is not overwhelmed like in many countries and uh, this is again because we are taking the necessary precautions we ask tourists to to take uh, well to wear their masks to keep the social distancing even at the hotels we have special uh, standard operating procedures so it is safe and uh, this is why tourists who come to seychelles and and they've been coming in in drones um uh, and this has helped the country to to recover um uh, the the major hotels are 90 percent uh, have a 90 percent uh, occupancy rate so the israeli tourists have come to seychelles and they've been able to to do their pcr test the exit pcr test and so seychelles is absolutely safe and in fact uh, i smile sometimes when i hear seychelles being mentioned in the news because nobody talks about the maldives which is on average getting about 1500 cases a day so seychelles is safe all the taxis, um, transportation and uh, everywhere, the hotels, they've been certified by the health authorities. You can I've come, enjoy your holiday and <laughs> you will go back home safe. So, Julia, take the next plane, come to Seychelles and uh, and enjoy our the, the warmth of our welcome.
2: That's a date. I have to say I was mesmerized by the pictures. They look absolutely beautiful, (laughs) and I wish you all well. Um, And congratulations with the rollout of the vaccine. That's some incredible work. So thank you so much. The president of the Seychelles there. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. markets are up and running this Tuesday, and we're adding to Monday's gains the S&P 500 close To record highs once again. Stocks are advancing amid strong earnings, strong economic fundamentals, and an ongoing reassessment, I think, over how much fresh stimulus the United States needs to add at this point. Bond yields are steadying on expectations, too, that President Biden will have to scale back his spending proposals amid congressional resistance. Less spending, of course, means less borrowing, which could send bond yields even lower. And that would be a big positive for the tech sector stocks in particular. And from stimulus to streaming, Amazon shares higher as the entertainment world awaits news of a possible purchase of MGM. Jeff Bezos, The Wizard of Amazon, is reportedly set to make a $9 billion bid for the fabled studio behind The Wizard of Oz and, of course, the James Bond franchise. $9 billion is pocket change for deep-pocketed Amazon, but it could help the company in its push for quality streaming content. We'll be discussing how the streaming wars might impact the cinema space later in the show with the head of IMAX, Richard Galfund. For now, though, we'll bring it back to one of our top stories and the people of India now facing a triple threat. Another tropical cyclone is about to make landfall, this one threatening eastern states, just as the country tries to push past the world's worst COVID outbreak. Fortunately, cases are now falling, but now a medical condition known as black fungus is spreading. Deloitte has been rallying the private sector to help India. It's part of a collective of 40 American firms sending much needed aid. Puneet Ranjan is CEO of Deloitte, and he joins us now. Puneet, fantastic to have you on the show. And this is an incredible response from the U.S. business community. I do want to talk about what you're doing, but first I want to talk about you and Deloitte. I know you have family members in India that fell ill. You've also got employees of Deloitte in India that were also unwell. How is everyone doing?
7: Julia, thank you for having me. Uh, yes, this is deeply personal for me. I have family in India. Lives in India, and she did contract COVID. Uh, thankfully, she is uh, now recovering. I have 50,000 professionals that call India home, and we had about six uh, percent of them uh, that um, that contracted COVID. And so, we are working uh, to protect them, to support them, and this is deeply personal.
2: I know, and, and thank goodness your mother is um, is recovering. What's the availability of vaccines like, talking of of protecting your workers there?
7: I think uh, vaccination ultimately is the challenge that uh, India will need to undertake. Uh, But at this point, uh, you started the session by talking about the aid that is going in, and that is absolutely critical. But what we need to do is stop the crush on the hospital system and stop the panic. And that's why uh, we announced uh, with the government of Haryana, which is a state in Haryana, where I come from, and uh, the Public Health Foundation in India, as well as the leading medical institute in Haryana, a effort that we call Expand the Hospital Ward. And the intent there is to try and take care out uh, to the homes, to the rural areas, and provide care to people so that they don't come crushing uh, the hospital system. I think it's a very innovative approach. Uh, we've been at it for about three weeks and, uh, and uh, the results are already coming in, uh, positive results.
2: Talk about the successes that you're already seeing and just so that my viewers understand I mean this is this is pretty incredible from what I've read this is assessing patients virtually trying to understand what their requirements are do those people actually need to go to a hospital or could they perhaps be given treatment at home do they know the best course of treatment as you said you're literally trying to reduce the burden on the physical hospitals and prevent people that perhaps don't need to be there going
7: that's exactly right. Mm. So in this district where we conducted the pilot, uh, we found that 94% of, uh, uh, of the patients uh, with COVID can be treated with home care. Wow. Um, and the, so there are about 5,500 active cases in the district that, of course, fluctuates. It's coming down, as you said. And there are five unique things that we did that really combined our innovative. The first is a virtual command and control center leveraging what existed in the district, but also uh, creating software so we can monitor what is happening in the district and what is happening with each individual patient. The second is virtual health. We deputized 200 medical students who call and divided them up 25 to 30 patients. They call them twice a day, around three or four key parameters. Uh, 6,500 home health kits that include an oximeter, a thermometer, basic medicine, steamers. We leveraged the ASHA network. These are home volunteers in the district, usually women, and uh, we leveraged them to take these home kits out to educate individuals, and then we created a COVID uh, hotline. So that's the second area. The third was a tiered health uh, system. Uh, So we set up field hospitals closer to uh, the villages and to primary care centers so people wouldn't come to the main hospital unless they needed to. Right. We um, rented eight uh, advanced life support ambulances to provide confidence that if somebody got ill, critically ill, they could be transported to the main hospital. And then the fourth thing that we've done is created an awareness and education campaign. And then the fifth is to create a playbook so that we can replicate this across the state.
2: And that was going to be my next question, just scaling this up ultimately. I mean, I want to talk about the work that you and some of the other CEOs have been doing too, because you recognize the need for oxygen oxygen concentrators. And we've talked about this a number of times already on the show over the past few weeks. And one of the things that's come up is trust and making sure that whatever supplies that you're providing actually get to where they're going. How are you ensuring that as a body in an organization?
7: Well, I'm really proud of my fellow uh, colleagues that have uh, contributed to this effort. And what we tried to do initially was to address the immediate need, which was oxygen. Uh, We have collaborated with the government, Niti Ayo, and the Ministry of Health. And we provide uh, oxygen concentrators, ventilators, other equipment to them. They're the ones that actually distributed out to the states based on need.
2: Yeah, and that's incredible. And I have one more question on this because I know Part of the negotiation between the United States and India is essential supplies. And it goes back to the question I asked about vaccines. Is there any sense from what you're hearing that perhaps the United States will allow the supply of essential ingredients for vaccines into India to facilitate the production that's so critical, not only to India, but also to the rest of the world and and poorer nations? Are you hearing anything on that?
7: I'm actually very proud of what the United States government has done. They've stepped up, uh, they've contributed. They recognize, uh, Julia, that uh, nobody is safe till we are all safe. This is not just an Indian issue. This is an issue for all of us. uh, Because as we know, if the virus mutates uh, and there are variants, it spreads uh, to the rest of us. I think the United States government is uh, stepping up um, and uh, will step up um, uh, going forward. Uh, So I'm actually quite proud of them.
2: Pruneet, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. Thank you for your work and our hearts are with your family, your employees and everyone there that's suffering. Fingers crossed. We address it quickly. Thank you. Rindgen, the CEO of Deloitte. So thank you. OK, we're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move to news from the big screen in a film that's fast, furious, and firing on all cylinders. F9, the latest in the fast and furious saga, has wrapped up the biggest opening weekend for IMAX of the pandemic so far, taking in $14 million across China, the Middle East, Russia, and South Korea. It's the second biggest opening weekend overall for the firm after Captain America Civil War. And the CEO of IMAX, Richard Galfond, joins us now. Rich, fantastic to have you on the show always. Is F nine actually that good, or is this just people fast and furious about coming back to uh, cinemas?
8: Well, you know, Julie, I always ask, are any of these movies that good or that bad? It's all in the <laughs> it's all in the mind of the audience. That's your right? job, <laughs> and how they react. But clearly, I mean, it, a movie the movie does one hundred and sixty five million dollars internationally in only a limited amount of markets. That's very powerful. So I think it's probably a combination of pent up demand. You know, this is the first real Hollywood blockbuster that's been released globally since the pandemic started. Um, So it's that demand. I think it's also, it's a real Hollywood movie with real stars and real special effects. And I think people have been chomping at the bit to do something like that. And then it's a franchise that people really enjoy. It's been powerful. So as always in the movie business, it's, it's a combination of all those things. But I, you know, you've got to give some credit to Universal because they uh, no one's really talked about it th- that much, but they tried a somewhat unusual distribution plan. So usually they would open up globally on the same day, but because of the state of the world in the virus, Europe being behind, Asia being ahead, North America being behind, they tried something pretty novel and daring, which is let's release it in China first, a month early before we're releasing it anywhere else. And I think it was their attempt to say, look, we got to open the movie industry at some point. If we just sit around and play the most conservative game in the world, things are going to sit on our shelves for a while. And this one works. So they they deserve a lot of credit.
2: Yeah, just take some risks. How do you think it translates to the U.S. recovery? And how are you at IMAX going to handle the adjustments to mask guidance, for example, for for vaccinated individuals? Are you just going to take it on trust?
8: So I think, first of all, your first question, how it translates to the U.S. The U.S. has steadily um, gotten better and better in box office. And some of the real key markets have opened up. So New York is 100 percent open. Uh, California, Los Angeles is about 50 percent. But in mid-June, it goes to 100 percent. A firm called NRG did a study in the U.S. and concluded that 73 percent of the people now say they're comfortable going to the movies, up 25 percent since 25 points since January, and they expect it to be 80 soon. So I think the U.S. is poised um, to start uh, meeting the other areas of the world where it's safe and people feel safe. With that said, I don't think it's going to be like a switch. I think it'll be more like a faucet. I do, This weekend in the U.S., um, there are a few big movies, Quiet Place 2 from Paramount. Uh, Cruella from Disney's coming out, um, and then you go into the summer blockbuster season with Black Widow and uh, Suicide Squad and a number of other films. So I think it's slowly going to return to some sense of normalcy, but going out on a limb, I think probably the Memorial Day four-day weekend coming up will be the biggest weekend um, so far since the pandemic in in the United States. And to the second part of your question, you know, I, I... Again, IMAX is a technology provider, so we, we're housed in, other comp- in exhibitors' multiplexes. So yeah. I think they'll yeah. have their own policies about mass, as you know, the CDC has backed off on that. So I don't know. We'll see. Um, but, but I do think this weekend's a true turning point, and we'll continue to build up what's happened in the rest of the world will start to happen in North America.
2: So you'll just comply by the broader standards set by wherever the cinema is located?
8: Yeah, the regulatory standards Mm -hmm. as well as the business partner standards. I mean, we don't have, we actually don't staff our theatres. They're staffed by the particular operators. So I think it's going to be up to them to enforce the rules.
2: And obviously that ties to your broader resilience throughout the pandemic as well. I have to get your views on content. The uh, Discovery Time Warner deal obviously parent company of CNN should mention that you think this is great for content
8: I think it's really good for the um, uh, for the industry in general I think both the movie industry and the streaming industry and, and I think that because um, you know and to be fair to 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 WarnerMedia um, they did a program that was probably appropriate for the pandemic which was day and day releases of movies on other platforms because theaters were closed, but I think that needs to evolve and change, and and Warner Media has started uh, to do that by saying there's a 45 day window next year. I think the 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 management team um, had some issues in how that was presented, and there are some strained, you know, issues in Hollywood. And I do think that you know David Zaslov and the Discovery team and the other people at Warner who are going to remain behind are going to be in a good position to rebuild. Um, those relationships, Warners is IMAX's like longest lasting studio relationship. And I also have a very strong relationship with David Zaslav. So for us, I think it's be very good. And I think it's be very good for the industry. I think it'll be a, a little bit of back to the future where I think Warners is going to retain a lot of the luster that it's built over all these years.
2: I have about 20 seconds. Bezos potentially buying Bond, i.e. MGM Studios. What do we think of that?
8: A slight oversimplification. I think Bezos is buying <laughs> the TV production side of M- MGM, Handsmaid's Tale, and a lot of the TV production, which I think will fit very nicely in with Amazon's distribution business. Bond is 50% owned by the Broccoli family, and my mm. guess is that they're not about to abandon the large theatrical releases, which have made that one of the most successful franchises in history. It's you know, on streaming. Stream it on your iPhone. I just don't think 007 is going to be interested in that.
2: (laughs) No one's ever called me simple before, Rich. There's always a first. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try to do better next time. (laughs) (laughs) Rich, Galfan, thank you so much. All right, coming up after the break, a lab in a lab. Is it possible for a dog to nose way to sniff out COVID-19? We'll unleash an exciting new theory after this. Welcome back to First Move. And finally, Pandemic Paw Patrol. Now, we know dogs can detect early signs of things like cancer with their super sensitive noses. Well, now British scientists think they can perhaps spot COVID infection too. Now, while the theory hasn't been peer reviewed or published in a medical journal, as Max Foster reports, it's giving us pause for thought when it comes to testing.
9: Man's best friend could be a new ally in the fight to contain coronavirus. A new UK study says highly trained dogs in controlled conditions may be able to sniff out and identify COVID-19 infections in humans.
6: Our previous work with using dogs showed that we were able to detect people with malaria by their scent. So we thought... Well, at the beginning of the pandemic, let's see whether our dogs could detect people with
9: COVID. The results of an early stage study, which hasn't yet been peer-reviewed, say dogs picked up the scent of COVID-19 on the clothing of infected people up to 94% of the time. And they were even able to detect asymptomatic cases. Standard PCR tests are the best tests for COVID-19, but they can't beat the dogs for the speed of the results. The pups are winning that by a nose.
6: That's really a quite very high level of of precision. They could detect people with low viral loads just as readily as they could those people with high viral loads.
9: Six dogs participated in the study. A group of Labradors, Golden Retrievers and Cocker Spaniels trained for six to eight weeks to recognise the scent of the virus researchers say dogs could one day be used in high volume areas like airports and concert arenas to screen for infections this can make a huge difference as we start to come out of lockdown and people start to travel and will hopefully assist in getting us all back to a more normal life But critics say it could be hard for the dogs to match their success in the lab in the real world, since some scents in crowded areas quickly disperse. There are pilot projects using COVID-19 sniffer dogs in airports underway in Finland, Germany and Chile. A whiff of hope from our four-legged friends in snuffing out this virus. Max Foster, CNN.
2: And that's it for the show. Thank you for watching. Stay with us, please, because Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store.